best way of preparing for the future is to plan for it now. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale, climate change. Five Degrees of Change with Daniel Murray, the Business Post's Energy and Environment Podcast. Hello and welcome to Five Degrees of Change, the Energy and Environment Podcast from the Business Post, now sponsored by PwC. Each week we speak to a new guest about the three policy changes and two personal changes they would make for a cleaner and a greener world. This week we're speaking with Saoirse McHugh, political activist and one of the country's best known environmentalists. Saoirse became a household name just a few short years ago while running for the Green Party in the 2019 European Parliament elections, when during a live election broadcast on television she stole the show with her no-nonsense style and refreshingly honest approach. Though unsuccessful in both the European election and the subsequent general election, Saoirse pulled in impressive votes for a newcomer on both occasions and, arguably, she's had more influence on the national conversation around environment and climate than many elected representatives have. Last year, Saoirse left the Green Party after they entered government, feeling she couldn't in good conscience be a member of a party in coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, whose policies she considered to be socially regressive. For her policy changes, Saoirse chose to shut Ireland down as a tax haven, to create a department of food and to nationalise all our renewable energy assets. For her personal changes, Saoirse explained how she had stopped flying and why she had decided to go fully vegan. Just to note that the sound quality on this particular podcast wasn't great for the first 15 minutes, but we did manage to fix things, so so please do stick with us and uh, the quality will improve. This is the last episode of this season of Five Degrees of Change. We've now spoken with 19 different guests, about 57 different policy changes and 38 different personal changes. So if you have enjoyed this season and you're curious about previous seasons, you can listen back on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We will be back again for another season and if you have suggestions for who would be a great guest, please do get in contact with me on dmurray at businesspost.ie. Next up, we'll talk to Saoirse McHugh, but first, a word from our sponsors. What we do today shapes tomorrow. We'll help you make a positive impact for a future we can create together. Think sustainability. Think beyond. Think PwC. Saoirse McHugh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Saoirse, you shot to fame a few years ago when you were running for the European elections, and you've remained a household name ever since. What was it that made you decide to run in the first place? And are you glad you took the decision to go into politics? Oh, am I glad? Um, well, I suppose I had been uh, for years now kind of um, scrambling around trying to find a way to be useful. Now, whether going into politics was, was useful at all still remains to be seen. Um, but it, had, it was basically a meeting with Eamon Ryan talking about something else, talking about... Um, I believe at the time I was like, what about some sort of like slaunch care, but for the environment and um, that could get cross party support. And he just said, well, why don't you run for us? And I'm sure he's kind of maybe uh, thought he should have vetted me a bit more since then. But um, I figured that I'm, you know, at the time I was like, I may as well give it a go. At least it would give me um, a platform and a structure through which to campaign. Um and as to whether whether I'm glad I went into it or not, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how useful, if anything, I've been. Um, I don't. I wonder sometimes does going into politics um, 
because it, it starts to move you away from why you originally went in and you start thinking about yourself a lot more because it, it does become very personal in a lot of ways. Um, so I have decided recently that I'm not even going to think about politics for a few years because I, I do think it, it does become, because of how it is done in Ireland, I think it does become quite a personal thing and it becomes a lot more focused on the personal rather than the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you ran in, in two elections over the last two years. Did you feel that that kind of took over your life o- over that period of time? When I think back over the last two years, um, I feel like I've been frozen. And especially, you know, the six months coming up to the European election and then between the nine months or whatever it was between the European election and the general and the Shannon, um, it, it was everything. And you start to think and you start to think about everything through the eyes of like a public rep, if you get me. Um, and it's like stopped me doing other stuff. I'm just thinking, OK, right, well, how else can I be effective? Um, and, and there's probably people who actually are really way more able to balance those two things than me. Um, but I think I'm... Uh, predisposed to kind of anxiousness anyway and like this feeling that people are looking at me <laughs> yeah it's certainly it's a funny game and um, you know it's a it's an anxious game to get into in the first place so it's a it's a funny one to get into with all of that public scrutiny I, I can imagine I would certainly find it extremely stressful and what have you learned about the world of, of Irish politics over the last two years um I I genuinely think like there's there's great things about our voting system um but like there's also massive flaws in that it just rewards parochialism and it rewards short-termism because of how like i wonder maybe if a percentage of the houses were given on a list system would that uh remove people from the kind of um the ties of like you know road fixing and i got you this and 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 one thing i've especially seen in mail and i'm sure it's the same all over the country is this how politicians are rewarded for underfunded systems that they govern. So, like, I was talking to a friend of mine who was saying, um, you know, Alan Dillon has my vote now. I said, why? He goes, well, he got my kid a, um, a bus pass, like a bus pass for school. And I was like, yeah, but your kid was entitled to that. And she was like, well, I couldn't get one. And he got one. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, his secretary did. And second of all, your kid is like is entitled to that he didn't get to anything and it just so happens that like how bad public transport is in mayo works for people work for certain politicians like despite the fact that they're in government um and like i'm, I'm i don't mean to take any any data bill in there at all this is i think pervasive in irish politics that and how um people just lie all the time like and i know it, that sounds really silly but i've started hustings and stuff where politicians would just say things and then it doesn't matter it doesn't seem to matter then what they vote on or what they do when elected you know at the next campaign they just 
say the same things again or different things or depending on who they're talking to. Yeah, they have they short memories things. and sometimes their electorate has, has short memories as well. Yeah. And it's it's not only a problem with Ireland in terms of the short termism, I mean, political systems around the world when you're talking about four, five, six year terms of, of people in office, you're only ever really looking at that far into the distance. And when it comes to environmental issues, when it comes to climate issues, that becomes a, a particular problem because you're talking about much more long term strategic thinking you're talking about intergenerational policy making really uh, in many ways you were saying there earlier that you know you you don't want to, to think about politics uh, at least for the next um, few years do you think it is possible that, that you would run again it's something i've thought of because i think the hardest thing i found what is is getting access to the media when you're unknown um and I feel like I've done that hard bit now. And so part of me thinks like, Jesus, you know, I remember the six months coming up to the European election where I was like knocking on doors and people, one, didn't know there was a European election and two were like, sorry, who are you? You know, and I had like, I had 20 posters all across the Midlands Northwest, bad winter, I'm cutting up. And when I think of like, it was just so hard. And you see so many people through so many election cycles, like who, who might or would be really good public reps, but it, it can be just luck. For me, I think a lot of it was luck of getting on primetime because of Grace Sullivan's previous vote. Um, and I, when I think of how, like I've broken the back of that, of that particular difficulty, um, I think, oh, maybe I would run again. But then, and I don't know if, All, if I could do that much being elected to all, I don't know how much there is to do there. Like any policy is only as powerful as the support outside of the all mm. for it, um, because of how we elect people. And so I've often wondered, like, it doesn't matter if there's, you know, if you have a majority. Mm. Like, like you're never going to have a majority until you have a majority support outside the Dáil for those particular policies. Mm. So perhaps work outside the Dáil is maybe the first step. Like, and then it doesn't even matter who's in the Dáil because so many of our politicians will go with what's popular. Yeah, and in order to get reelected. And certainly, if you already have a platform, um, you know, if the ambition isn't necessarily to get into government and to hold a ministerial portfolio, then in some ways, the best thing the Dáil is is a public platform. So, if you have a public platform outside of the Dáil uh, and it's one that you can you can use, and perhaps there are things that you can do, and you don't necessarily have to engage in the art of compromise that many people have to inside parties uh, as well. Um, if you were to run again, it almost certainly wouldn't be as a green candidate. You, you having left the party um, recently, and I think when you left it, you described the culture there as as toxic. Were your views really as ideologically separated from from the parties? Well, you know, this is the thing because when you listen to a lot of people in the party talk, um, it does sound like our views are aligned. Um, so. Perhaps a lot of it was to do with conflict only arose when uh, going into government became an option. Um, and perhaps, like, I think it's very generous for it to be called the art of compromise, especially the manifestation that we see in Ireland. It's 
doesn't look like much of an arc to me. Um, I think that I think that there's quite a conservative element to environmentalism, and I actually it's probably to everything, but. I'm looking at it in environmentalism and I think we're all subject to it. Like I imagine, I often wonder when I'm in my 60s, what will be, you know, what would be happening politically that I'd be like, oh, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed. Um, because I think, I think that naturally happens. Um, and I, I do think that there was maybe a, this idea of, you know, who these people think they are, you know, I've been doing this for years and or we've been doing this for years and not, we know how to be environmentalists and it just came to a head like I think we probably could have probably stayed in the greens for a while or a lot of us could have stayed in the greens if the issue of government hadn't come up and hadn't come up so immediately um, and I, I still maintain that the greens as a party and would have been much better off staying outside and finding their feet like they've been just riddled with controversy um, and like really kind of quite juvenile interior leaks and like dirty laundry all over the place on the hallway hanging on the front door um like a party that needed you know four years in opposition to maybe mature um but maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe you know the climate crisis is it's such that going in with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael was the most sensible thing to do mm. um like, I, I don't think myself and the people who disagree with me will ever kind of come to a an agreement on that. Yeah. Um, you were recently linked with the establishment of a new left Green Party called On Rawarta Gloss, along with other former Green Party members. What is your involvement with that group? And, and can we expect to see a new Green Party launched in the coming months or years? Um, I'm not involved with that group. I think my involvement in that group goes as far as... Um, being friends with and like you know having been like being politically aligned with a lot of these the other people named um you know it sounds like they're going to launch and to be honest i think it's a great addition to irish politics um it'd be a great addition to environmentalism because it does in ireland or political environmentalism in ireland um obviously it will depend on how it all plays out. But what I do like about this whole, about a new group coming out is it, you know, I know people always roll their eyes, oh, look, left is splitting, blah, blah, blah. But I often see, I, I see that as a good thing. First of all, because we don't have a first-past-the-post system, so it doesn't matter if, you know, if there's a hundred groups. Um, But also I think it shows like a, a dynamism and um life on in progressive politics in Ireland, maybe that doesn't seem to exist that much in maybe more conservative politics in Ireland that are, um, you know, are, are, are losing ground all the time. And so I think, I actually think, you know, Ireland has been so badly served by two or three main parties going back and forth between each other for a hundred years that the more parties, the more options, the more takes and angles on stuff is only a good thing. Okay, Saoirse, well, it's time for your five degrees of change. So you're going to give us three policy changes and two personal changes for a greener world. So tell us what your first policy change is. My first policy change now, these are all like based in Ireland, 
um, would be closing Ireland as a tax haven, so closing all our tax loopholes and committing us to uh, tax justice, global tax justice. Okay, great. Well, th- this wouldn't seem like your kind of typical environmental policy change. So how does this link back into climate and, and environmental justice? I suppose it, it's quite, um, it, it is quite a maybe unclear or non-intuitive link. But Ireland, you know, it, we allow so many countries and companies to hide profits here. Um, and to avoid being taxed. And what that is doing in effect um, is it's removing, it's allowing companies steal revenue that should be going to other countries. And in a lot of cases, these countries are poorer countries than Ireland. And those countries need revenue in order to bring up the quality of life of their own citizens, but also for environmental protection, for um, adaptation work. Um, and for infrastructure work so that they can both adapt to a climate changed world um, but also so they can mitigate um, as soon as possible and so they can begin to reduce their own emissions like if you think about what is needed and, and the same as in Ireland like you, you always hear people who are um, who are maybe trying to put off climate action you always hear the cost of it being invoked and like, there's no other way to think about it, but all this tax that's hidden in Ireland is tax that should be going to other countries. The Irish government to this day still argues that we're not a tax haven. You know, they say our tax regime is fully transparent. They say our corporate tax rate is 12.5%, which may be low tax, but it's not zero tax. So so what is it in your view that makes Ireland a tax haven? Well, not being an expert on tax whatsoever, and actually a few, few times I have tried to read reports about it, I'm like, oh God, um, that's so complicated. I suppose, you know, the Irish government may say that we're not a tax haven, but virtually everywhere else that talks about tax havens does. Didn't the European Parliament just vote that Ireland was a tax haven? You know, tax justice, uh, tax, tax justice network votes that Ireland is a tax haven. Christian Aid talks about Ireland as a tax haven lecturers talk about Ireland being a tax haven, like Ireland is a tax haven. Certainly, um, you're backed up anyway by the University of Berkeley, who two years ago uh, put out a paper estimating that about £170 billion is lost to governments all around the world every year from profit shifting to tax havens. And Ireland was labelled as one of the biggest tax havens in the world because of the volume of revenues that are shifted onshore here for tax reasons. £170 billion is a lot of money. What could governments around the world be using that money for instead? Well, I just saw um, an article there when I was reading about this by um, um, by Christian Aid talking about how the UN is now going to investigate whether, when they're reviewing Ireland, whether our tax policies are undermining the rights of the child. Um, so education, sanitation, you know, adaptation for climate change, environmental measures, um, improving the quality of life across so many things, health, housing, um, the same thing we use tax for here. And it's also worth mentioning, you know, that Ireland too loses a tax take from tax avoidance. This is not something where we are the winners. All we're doing is contributing to this um, system whereby the only winners are massive corporations and private individuals.
Sure. Um, but there is an argument that we have benefited greatly from this model um, and that, that there's a danger that by kind of shutting us down as, as a conduit for, for tax avoidance, we lose out on the bumper corporate tax revenues that have in the last number of years propped up our public finances, maybe most notably over the last year d- during the pandemic. So is, is there a chance that we end up missing out on, on revenues for our own climate action by doing this? Yes. I, you see, I think that as an argument is actually another argument against being a tax haven because what it's saying, though, is, you know, we have made ourselves so dependent on this tax take, we can't afford to lose it, which is all the more reason to develop a much broader, much more robust tax base in Ireland. And also, you know, and alongside that, what that would mean would be instead of relying so much on foreign direct investment, it would mean we start to develop localized industries um, and localized businesses. And I think a lot of the problem with Ireland is we've, we've put ourselves into this situation which is precarious no matter whether we maintain it or not. Like Joe Biden there just a few days ago was talking about um, a, ta- a corporate tax rate of I think it's 21% for US mm. multinationals no matter where they are based in the world. Um, and you know that could look at Ireland losing a whole load of tax revenue and of course it could because we have such um, an unsustainable system like we are so reliant on a few small companies that we've backed ourselves into a really precarious situation and we were already looking at a loss in corporate tax take because of new measures being brought in by the OECD and so I think it's all the more like our dependency on these corporate tax takes is all the more reason why we shouldn't be dependent on them. Um, because of the massive impact it will have if they leave. And the new US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just in the last few days has called for a global minimum tax rate to reverse a 30-year race to the bottom, as she called it. So we could finally be nearing the end of this kind of global system of tax avoidance. And and as you say, Ireland's economy effectively has been built, the government wouldn't say on tax avoidance, but certainly on using tax as a, as a strategy uh, uh, to, to attract companies here. Um, I want to ask you about carbon tax, um, because you want companies obviously to to be taxed properly, but you're against the idea, or at least previously were against the idea of a general carbon tax, despite the role that it would play in making polluting fuels less attractive uh, for people to buy. So is it not better that polluting fuels would be made more expensive as a disincentive through through the carbon tax? So up to a point, yes, I believe that to be the case. Um, and the issue, and specifically in Ireland, and I, I did speak about this during an election campaign, is that more effective, I believe, would be first providing the alternatives for people to switch to. Um, you know, it, while it makes sense economically, and often, like, we, if you take into account, you know, the plastic bag tax, those kind of um, disincentivizing taxes only work when the option, when the option that is there is readily, readily usable and readily available. Um, now, if it's a revenue-raising tax, if that was the point of it, rather than the hope that it would you know, help phase out fossil fuels, then I understand why you would put a carbon tax on. But in terms of an environmental point of view, um, like I saw someone saying, you know, if you want, uh, if you're, if you're a, a country at war and you want factories to start producing guns, you build factories that make guns. You don't tax factories that aren't making guns. Um, 
And so I think if you provide people with an alternative first and foremost, it would people would begin to change then. And then if people aren't taking, you know, the alternative options, be it, you know, transport, housing, even heating, um, then you could look at well, why aren't people changing? But it's not that it's not that people I and I, I, you know, I, of course I am skewed because I'm based in Ackle. I'm renting a house. I'm renting a really old house. Um, but the reason is not just that fossil fuels are too cheap. Um, it is also that the alternatives are way too expensive and, and to be honest, quite out of reach for people. Okay, Saoirse, um, it's time to move on to your personal changes. So what's the first change that you've made in your life? I have stopped flying places and I've started... I suppose, changing where I go and how I go there. So it's been more boats and buses and no more planes. Okay, so so when did you make the decision to stop flying and, and why did you make it? Um, It was about, it kind of phased in slowly, um, like each flight becoming more and more uh, uncomfortable to take. Um, but about, I would say, t- three years ago, I think it was, um, I just kind of stopped and I figured I couldn't really in good conscience continue to take flights even though I love it and they're so uh, tempting so often like I look at you know cheap flights online and be like oh wow imagine going there now it would be so nice um, but it's just it's just taken I suppose a, looking at holidays and going places a bit differently and would you have been a big traveller before? I suppose I thought I went a lot of places, but probably in terms of frequent flyers, definitely not. And so has it been difficult for you to to do that? Like, have you found yourself put out on a number of occasions? And what's the furthest that you've had to travel without using a plane? Um, Well, COVID has really been quite um, helpful in me not feeling like I'm missing out on lots of things. Um, We, I've been looking at heading to the US this year um, or whenever whenever I can again um, you know via I've seen cargo ships you know take a certain number of passengers um, now I and and even with that I'm like right well if I'm taking you know 10 days to cross the, the sea I may as well spend a couple of months there but I haven't actually gone that far yet um, I think Croatia is the furthest I've gone on trains Wow. And that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. So how do you go about that if you want to cross the Atlantic by cargo ship? Um, how do you make contact with these companies to try and book a place? Uh, a lot of them have like 10 or 12 berths and you just go onto their website. Now it's way more expensive than flying as well. Um, so it's just, it, it does take a change in kind of mindset and I would have to, you know, factor in the fact that I'd be at sea for 12 days, which quite frankly sounds awful to me. I'm like, oh God, it's like some, you know, old time horror movie. Um, But, you know, it would be just kind of reimagining that and saying, right, this is the holiday, because it is still incredibly privileged to be able to, you know, pay to take a cargo ship um, to, you know, Trinidad and Tobago and stopping off there. so you just, yeah, you just Google it and, and a lot of different companies have different rates going. Um, did you find that um, when you were canvassing for election up in the northwest of, of Ireland, was it kind of conducive to very low carbon transport or did you have to u- use a car to get around? Oh, yeah, without a doubt you have to use a car. And 
we did, I did canvas an awful lot in leak slip and stuff because my, my granny lives in Lucan and it's so easy. Like you will never know the joy or, or people who canvas in, you know, compact living areas do not know the joy of it because you just walk around these massive housing estates that might have, you know, a thousand houses and everyone, someone's living in every house um, and you can walk for most of the evening. And you can cover 10 times the amount you cover in the same few hours if you were canvassing Mayo or Donegal. Um, so definitely there was no option but to have a car. And several times we thought it'd be better to have two cars now, um, just in terms of trying to canvass. Um, do you think that the pandemic is something that maybe could change people's flying habits? Like me and you obviously are able to do this interview over Zoom now. I've been able to do a number of interviews with people either by phone or, or by Zoom o- over the last year. And um, people maybe that I would have travelled to, to see before, not necessarily flown out of the country, um, but would have travelled to see before. So do, do you think that the pandemic could change people's travelling habits or their flying habits? I think... Um it had the oppor- it has the opportunity to do so, but I think it would take action at a governmental level for that to be a um, for it to change flying habits in a long term way. Um, like already you can see this, you know, support the aviation industry getting back on its feet. Um, and instead of maybe taking this opportunity to say, right, well look the aviation industry is going to be scaling down massively anyway. Um, how can we take this opportunity, you know, while the government is paying so much of the wages and stuff, um, to, you know, look at retraining, look at what a fair um, reduction of the avia- aviation industry might look like. Um, but instead, I think we've kind of been in this holding pattern. And it's not just aviation. There's a lot of businesses where it's like, as soon as we get back to normal, as soon as we get back to normal. So, yeah, I think the the opportunity was there. Um, but I, I do think there'll be a big push to, you know, support your local um, multi-billion euro multinational corporation and get back in the skies or whatever it'll be. Um, although we do discuss them on this podcast, some people are quite critical of advocating for personal changes like stopping flying or or cutting down on meat or, or those kind of personal changes when, when it comes to climate change or even just focusing too much on the on the personal change side of things because it kind of socialises the responsibility when maybe it's corporation, certain corporations and government that, that ultimately have the responsibility for making the systemic changes what's your philosophy when it comes to making these kind of personal changes for the sake of the environment? Um, I suppose it's that, you know, I accept that a lot of these things are like all of, of what's happening is a societal issue. They're systemic issues. Um, you know, a lot of it can be traced back or traced down to capitalism. Um, and I would never advocate that we all just turn off an extra light um, as a solution, because I, I, I would agree with a lot of those people in that I do think this socialising of um, and the individualization of the responsibility of climate breakdown. Um, it, well, I, I think it's just wrong. I think it's factually incorrect. You know, we don't live as individuals. Um, but that being said, I still try to do the most I can in, you know, a lot of aspects of my life while knowing that you know it's not going to save anything um i still 
think, well, you know, if I have the choice, I would at least like to not put money behind this industry. Um, but I would never advocate it for it and I would never try and make somebody feel guilty about it because we're not going to guilt our way out of this at all. Oh, okay, Saoirse. Well, let's get back onto your policy changes. So what's the second policy change you've made? My second policy change would be um, creating a department of food and coming up with the food policy for Ireland. And under that, bringing in agriculture, environment, land use, the marine, you know, marine life, um, but having it all under food. Okay, great. So currently, uh, we obviously have the Department of Agriculture. So why recharacterize that department as the Department of Food? And what difference do you think that shift in emphasis would make? Um, I suppose, you know, and, and this comes from Europe as well. So I, I'm saying this knowing that a lot of the changes would be shaped by what happens in Europe. Um, but we're imagining if, you know, we could do whatever we liked. Um, so much of our agricultural policy is is more about an agricultural production. It's more yeah. about agricultural production rather than food. And I think changing it um, and looking at the whole life cycle of a food item rather than, you know, kilos produced or kilos exported, it would shift the focus away from this kind of um, commodified product view of agricultural products um, towards a kind of a more a much more holistic um, I don't even like using the word product but a much more holistic aspect part of our life as food is and and I think there's no other industry in that has the effect that agriculture has in terms of land wildlife um, like there's, there's a few that have the effect, you know, that have close to the effect in terms of emissions. Um, but in terms of land, I think agriculture is one of our biggest leverage points. And especially in Ireland, because so much of it is subsidised. Like we already have a massively subsidised agricultural system. So it means that there's a, a lever there, meaning, you know, we could we could make transitions in our agricultural system that could be done in a really fair way because it is so heavily subsidised. It is so controlled by the state and by the EU. And certainly it is It is the largest interface we have with, with nature, really, and farmers, therefore, are, are the custodians um, of that nature and of that land. And um, what would be your big priorities then if there was a new department of, of food established? What would be the priorities of that department and what kind of responsibilities would fall under it? Um. Well, I suppose the, the main thing I would like to see in it would be a redistribution of power within our agri-food system. Um, like, you know, currently it is being seen, our, our agricultural system is used and is is acted upon as a, um, as something that is geared primarily towards creating profit rather than creating food locally. So my main thing I would like to see would be a, a, a redistribution of power from, you know, um, from large agribusinesses, from large chemical companies and a reorientation of power to people who live locally, um, to the farmers themselves. And within that, I believe that if we could, you know, shift the focus from profit to food production, we would see a corresponding um refocusing on you know preserving the natural area 
and preserving natural ecosystems because you know currently um there's massive debt amongst farmers in Ireland and there's very little but very little power held you know on farms so much of it is you know trying to integrate or being integrated into these really large international kind of global commodity supply chains um so I, I think if we could look at at it at, through lens of food all the way from you know how how is what is the life like in the field that this is grown all the way through to who can afford this food can does everyone have access to food that is grown near them like I see and it's it, it's a big issue especially in the southeast in Ireland at the moment um the deterioration of water quality and it it's I find it really bizarre that we've gotten to a situation whereby people who may not farm feel that they can't say anything about it um or comment despite the fact that you know the the main people benefiting from the pollution of this water um are you know enormous companies like really really big dairy businesses um and yet it's somehow still being kind of used as a you know if you say something about the pollution of water all of a sudden you're you know you're anti johnny 20 cattle down the road um when in reality like our food system is one thing everyone shares everyone has to eat you know the land who whoever has property deeds on the land at any given moment i don't think you know should be exempted from having a duty of care towards the land and so i think yeah removing the profit motive as the driving force behind irish agriculture could really be transformative um if our system when our food system is driven by for profit models through through large corporations do you think that does have a, a direct effect on not only environmental standards but even our dietary standards across society as well definitely and the the lack of equality within that like so much of your access to food is tied up with poverty is tied up with education or access to education or not um you know and and if it might feel not related but even look at you know co-living the um or the a lot of the accommodation crisis in dublin at the moment when you see people living in you know four bunk beds in a room um with a single gas hob like this is going to affect how you eat and what you eat and food is so much more than fuel um you know and it's you know food is is so integral i believe to you know to human culture um mm. that i I think that recentering it, you know, would be. Oh, I, th- I think it would just be brilliant across the board because so it 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 interacts with every single aspect of our lives. Um, at the moment, our agricultural system is really dominated by livestock farming, farming both for dairying and for beef. Um, what kind of alternatives do you think there are in terms of Ireland's wider agricultural model uh, that we could pursue in the years to come? Well. Like even even you know within our livestock model, we still import so much food feed for livestock, and what you know you'll often see um the tillage farmers of Ireland are you know quite a under supported group, and there's definitely room for expansion there, um you know for having a lot more tillage on the island, but there's no reason, and you always hear people say to me, oh you can't grow veg in Ireland, which is nonsense of course. We've been growing veg for thousands of years in Ireland. Um, but what I would love to see would be 
a much more localized food system whereby you get a much greater diversity of food from an area. Um, and I know, of course, there's arguments for, um, oh, well, you know, this area produces this far more efficiently and this area produces that. So I'm not saying that, you know, no trade happens or no exchange happens, but there's a huge potential for a farmer, for instance, outside a small town or two farmers or four farmers or 10 farmers um, to be supplying a large bulk of that town's needs um of their food needs and i think this you know wouldn't just have a positive effect on the town but also it would mean that the farmers had more agency you know weren't reliant on a monopoly creamery's price that they were being given um and had a you know had a customer base that was there ready to support them you know rather than you know being constricted through a contract with tesco for instance uh, is there an argument for even broadening out our agricultural system to more than just food products? So there is the opportunity to grow agricultural produce as fuel stocks for, for things like biofuels or for the textiles industry, or perhaps even growing cannabis plants for the new medicinal cannabis industry that is, is likely to take off in the next decade? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think a diversification of agriculture is beneficial in every direction. Now, I'm always with I kind of, I'm always wary of the ideas of biofuels um, because it does feel like just, you know, adding more fuels to the mix rather than any sort of meaningful reduction in the use of fossil fuels, or at least so far, that's what it kind of looks like. Um, but definitely in terms of textiles, in terms of like even people using hemp as building material and, uh, you know, a load of stuff like that. Um, and I, I think if Ireland really said, right, we are going to diversify and try and get as much different products from the land as possible, you know, while still allowing nature to recover um, and allowing, for instance, floodplains to recover. I do think a lot more things would come to light as being, you know, growable in Ireland or useful. Um, I think the the risks would be the same would be, you know, how do you keep, how do you keep food production or, you know, textile production out of these, um, large kind of, out of becoming, you know, a majority export product so that we don't have, you know, just monocrops of whatever it is been grown all around us. Um, you have some experience in pitching environmental policies to traditionally conservative and, and rural communities. How do you think that we bring the farming community and, and rural Ireland along on this journey? Um, I, th- I, like, I think the farming community is close enough there. Like the farming community in general, and obviously I'm, I'm speaking from Mayo as well, so in general in Mayo, um, aren't doing great from our current agricultural model. And I do feel that, um, you know, the, the time is completely right in rural Ireland and in agricultural Ireland for an alternative to be proposed to them. And, you know, when speaking or when canvassing to people, you know, you'll get a lot of agreement because contrary to this kind of story that's always pushed out that, oh, actually, all the farmers love the fact that Ornua, you know, made an, an extra million this quarter or whatever it is. Um, 
that you know that's not the case on the ground that we do have a very powerful agricultural lobby that does represent you know maybe the top is it even 10% maybe 8% of farmers um and represents them really well and and does have a really good is very good at messaging <laughs> let's just say that um so there is this idea this kind of homogenization of all farmers and all farming experience um but I do think rural Ireland is ready. Like even, even to this day, you'll see people say, um, and many politicians say, "Oh, I have to do this for rural Ireland," or "Rural Ireland needs this." Just, just today or yesterday, I was reading um, Chagas lodged an objection. Not Chagas, Antashka, sorry, lodged an objection to this um, a big Gouda factory in Kilkenny. I think it is. Did you see that? Yeah. Um and. I saw a few TVs coming in, but they were talking about like, you know, this is anti-rural Ireland, this sort of rubbish. And like, I was just saying like, you know, it's really insulting this kind of uh, pretending that and, and speaking for these, these for people in rural Ireland and pretending that like we rural dwellers love nothing more than like a factory that was too polluting for the Netherlands um, to come here and put us all into debt and destroy the water. And like probably offshore the profits, like like how how they've managed to rhetorically get away with linking that to rural Ireland without everyone falling off their seats laughing at them, um, is beyond me. But it's very well done. And look, I I think that there's probably a lot more in common between farming communities and the environmental movement than than people often uh, give credit for. Uh, okay, Saoirse, well, look, we're going to move on to your second personal change. So what's the next change that you've made in your life? Um, I went vegan. Um, so I've, I had been vegetarian for years um, and I finally decided to go vegan. So when did you decide to do that? I decided probably um, maybe six months ago. Okay. And did you have kind of specific reasons? Because there are lots of reasons, obviously, around going either vegetarian or vegan. Some some of them are animal rights reasons, some are health reasons, others are climate and, and environmental reasons. So did you have specific reasons that, that pushed you to, to, to go fully vegan? Um, I suppose, well, I, I suppose I have to talk about my vegetarianism first, in that it had been on and off my whole life. Um. Definitely when I was younger, a lot of it was to do with animal rights and just the kind of, you know, seeing, seeing when I was younger, like I always used to watch when dad would send the lambs off to the factory and seeing the sheep go mental. And it just used to break my heart because obviously those, you know, those lambs aren't going to get a job in the factory. Um, and then as I got older and I realized, um, not so much even the climate impact, but the environmental, like the biodiversity impact of agriculture in Ireland. Um, I really started to feel like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of this. And then about six months ago, I, I just figured like, I, I just, yeah, I just do not want to support this industry. Um, and it's probably half and half animal cruelty issues and the environment with me to be honest 
Um, but the environment was probably the, the thing that pushed me finally to just go fully vegan. And um, we've had lots of people on the podcast who are either cutting down on meat or, or going vegetarian, but you're the first we've spoken to that's gone fully vegan. So how difficult has it been this uh, these last six, six months to actually do that? How difficult a diet is it to, to maintain? Um, it's not actually that difficult for you. Like I had tried a few times before, um, but the flesh is weak. Um, um, and it was really baking that used to, I used to not be able to find, um, vegan alternatives. Oh, vegan. Sorry. I lie. Actually, I do have three hens and I eat their eggs. Um, but apart from that, I won't like eat eggs out or buy eggs. But once I found like Flora do this plant based kind of butter thing, and it actually works quite well as a butter substitute and baking, like in texture and stuff like that. Um, so I was like, right, I'll just go with this. And in my past, um, I was obsessed with food. And, you know, one iteration of this was this kind of orthorexia. So I wouldn't eat anything processed. I wouldn't eat anything, um, you know, any quote unquote, you know, bad food, um, anything like that. And the idea of these kind of processed fake butters, fake cheeses or anything would have really horrified me but it doesn't bother me now um and I actually feel much better knowing that the um that there was no as much as I know that there was no cruelty involved in the making of the food of the food I have I think having been a vegetarian for years and my mum has been a vegetarian most of her life um made the transition easier in that a lot of the food I was eating was vegan anyway um so i found it quite easy and are, are there particular times that are more difficult than others like whether vegetarianism or, or with veganism whether that be eating out somewhere or when traveling or even obviously during all the canvassing that you did for, for elections are those times more difficult or was it from the vegetarianism side of things was it so so much embedded into your life that it, that it was easy eating out in especially in places like mayo is still quite difficult um, but it's remarkable how even over the last year it's gotten so much easier to get vegan food. Um, I I think one of the hardest things I find is going to people's houses. Um, I've been invited for dinner, especially if I know that they eat an awful lot of um, either meat or dairy. I feel bad saying it, like because you know if someone's invited you over, often they usually already have an idea of what they're going to make. Um, so, yeah, that's that's when it feels most difficult, to be honest. And ha- have you noticed any health benefits, any change in energy or anything over the last few months? Or equally on the other side, have, have you found it difficult to be able to get sufficient protein into your diet or, or any other, um, you know, nutri- nutrition into your diet that maybe is difficult to get through a vegan diet? Uh, no, I've been... Um, not really. Like, I do have vegan protein because um, I do... A good bit of weightlifting uh, like it's gross compared to whey protein like it's still disgusting but it's so much better than it was even a few years ago but it has this weird gritty sand kind of texture to it um but it's fine if i just blend it with enough like bananas and frozen berries it's fine and so do you use any good vegan cooking books or, or websites as a resource i one of my favorite cookbooks is um yotam otolenghi's flavor so um, I got that from mum, but really I just kind of have it myself 
all the time that cookbook i find that one really good i find hugh fernie whittingstall's um veg really good um i don't think either of them are explicitly vegan but you can always just take out things or add in different things um but no i've i've i think once i just relaxed into it because i had been cutting out things bit by bit anyway um and thankfully, I suppose I found out that, you know, those fries bars, the, the peppermint bars, they're vegan. So that has been my lifesaver. Well, look, hopefully you'll provide some people with inspiration to at least try some vegan cooking, even a, a night or two a week and, and maybe even make the jump eventually themselves as well. OK, Saoirse, well, it's time for your third and your final policy change. So what's your last change? My last change would be a, um, a st- nationalizing all renewables in Ireland and creating a state-owned um renewables con- company or policy that you know whose whole aim was for providing renewable energy for the state this kind of a policy change would be considered quite radical in some quarters mostly because it would involve the compulsory purchase of private energy assets from mostly foreign companies that have in- invested in renewable energy in Ireland over the years and it would close off Ireland as a market for foreign direct investment into energy uh, into renewable energy which is a rich source of kind of development capital to get those projects uh, off of the ground why do you think it is that that this is the way that we should go to centralize this as as a, as a state project because um because of i suppose what it the path that it looks like we're on um looks to be one whereby mostly you know big multinational corporations can buy up renewable energy straight from wind farms what are they called again these um corporate power purchase agreements agreements yeah um and you know it's looking like what will end up happening will be a huge amount of renewable energy is being produced in Ireland, um, but a lot of it is going to increase demand brought here by those companies that do have this preferential access to purchasing power. Um, so it will mean nothing really for our renewable energy goals in Ireland. And I think it will, I think once again, like as we were talking about with the carbon tax, I think it would be really bad for. Um, messaging and I think it would be really bad for garnering support for renewable energy from the people. Airgrid themselves recently made proposals around a kind of a more centralised approach to planning the electricity system which they are in charge of including directing where renewable energy stations would be built and also where large energy users such as data centres owned by these big corporations that you're talking about that are doing these corporate power purchase agreements uh, directing where they have to build and where they can locate as well. So aside from the state own our renewable energy assets and the benefits that we might get from that, do you think that it needs to take a more direct and strategic role in actually planning our energy system? Yeah, and and have um, an equitable power supply that you know that that is kind of rooted in um, public participation and fairness as its kind of leading goal, because otherwise it, it does feel like when you say. Oh, well, you know, 70% of our um, renewable energy is going to, or 70% of Ireland's energy is being powered by renewable energy by, what is it, 2030, I think it is. Um, If in that time we have increased our energy demand, um, but there's no real change to, you know, how our homes are being powered, um, 
I think you would just get more and more resistance to it. Like I think that um, there was a, a, a bog slide up in Donegal, I believe it was, Mean Bog or Mean Bog um, there recently. Um, and it was a site, it was at the site of this big wind farm that um, had an agreement with Amazon that Amazon was going to be buying all their power. Um, and it has, you know, it has really, there's, there's this big bog slide and it has really galvanized um, people against these sort of wind farms being brought in and, you know, plonked on top of people. And if, if communities do not have the benefits or don't, you know, don't get the benefits of these um, wind farms, I think it's going to be more and more difficult to situate them in places. And I think it's going to, I think the situation will come to a stage where like these, these wind farms will be like materially stopped by people. Um, and if, you know, of course, like if I live near Mean Bog that, you know, Amazon were going to get all the power from and the bog, there was this big bog slide, I'd feel really negatively towards these wind farms. Um, and, you know, especially I would, I would feel really negatively towards our government subsidizing them in any way or supporting them in any way um and i think it's you know public participation and buy-in to an energy transition will be key to its success or not so i i really worry that we're just creating a massive problem for ourselves by allowing these companies come in and not to mention of course the fact that we're still looking at increasing our overall energy consumption yeah, absolutely. And a huge amount of that being driven by the industrial sector, which is mostly data centers. But there's also very, very large um, factories such as the Intel factory in, in Leakslip. And these large energy users are going to make up the vast majority of the increase in our electricity usage over, over the next 10 years. So that's really where the growth is coming from. So far, it's not coming from kind of domestic energy use or from the electric car revolution as, as much as people are pointing to that. There's an argument that's used about oil and gas exploration in Ireland that because we gave such favourable tax returns um, or such favourable tax terms to oil and gas companies, we were effectively giving our national energy assets away. However, there's also an argument that the state has not been liable for the hundreds of millions that have been sunk into unsuccessful exploration off Irish coasts for many years. You could make a similar argument for renewable energy assets, that there's a benefit to the state not being responsible for the capital requirements to actually build these expensive assets, to build this expensive um, infrastructure. Um, it, where would the state get mo the money to do this massive infrastructural development if it wasn't to be raised on, on the private markets by private operators? Doesn't the European, I think the European Central Bank gives out massive grants that the kind of size that only a state would get for things like energy projects, don't they? They might. They certainly give out loans, all right. Um, so there's there's a possibility of being able to access some some ECB financing. Like electricity is something that, you know, there's a guaranteed market there for it. Um, and that that sort of argument, you know, if used throughout the history of the state in Ireland, would have led to some of, you know, arguably the state's best moves, like, you know, rural electrification uh, or um, free education for everyone not happening. Um, and I think that a state isn't a business um, or it shouldn't function as one. And that the, you know, the goal should always be the long-term well-being of the people. Um, and so, like, 
you know, if a business can afford to do it, a state can afford to do it. You know, if if our government doesn't use um, or doesn't have to sink or put, put up the capital spending to create these wind farms, um, but also doesn't get any of the electricity from them, say Amazon or whoever gets all the electricity for them, then it's almost completely... Um, almost irrelevant to Ireland except for the fact that these are being put up in Ireland. Um, the last thing to ask you about is is the kind of community-owned energy project. You were talking earlier about the kind of buy-in from the public and how we might be reaching a kind of dangerous situation whereby we might lose that buy-in from the public, especially for onshore wind if it's all going towards quite large industrial energy users. So what are your views about community-owned uh, energy projects? And do you think that that's a model alongside a, a state-owned model of, of energy assets that could work? Yeah, I mean, in in some way, like I really like the idea of it. When I look at um, Ackle alone, when you look at all the money that just leaves Ackle for electricity, I think um, every year you think, geez, wouldn't it be great if we had our own little electricity generation? I suppose the issues around it would be who classifies as community and who doesn't. Um, like I had been thinking about it in terms of Ackle and even getting as far as to think like, Okay, so say we put up, you know, four wind turbines ourselves, where would they go? Would they go on commonage? Okay, then who, you know, who counts as a community? Who can, who gets dividends from this? Um, is it a dividend system? Or does everyone just have to buy it at a regular rate and then the money is spent in the community and who decides where it's spent? Um, I think it could bring up a huge amount of issues, um, not to mention the fact that the upfront costs for communities to do something like that is massive um, and getting people to you know buy in and look at putting in these applications these things can take years and a lot of communities have done it um, I know Scotland has a, like a thriving community energy sector um, but Ireland being so small it just it almost makes more sense I think um, for it to be done on a national scale and it could be done so much more rapidly on a national scale um, than, you know, letting different communities try and go for it themselves. Now, I'm sure there's some way that there could be a state community kind of partnership on different projects. But then what about the communities that, you know, can't agree or, um, you know, just don't don't have the mass of people or don't have, you know, the space or whatever you know there's a huge amount of issues what about all the people and and there's more and more of them every year who live in um who live in houses in dublin or flats in dublin who don't have the options that maybe you do in rural areas um and so i think in terms of fairness a state-owned renewable energies might be fairer. Okay, Saoirse, you made us three policy changes, including shutting Ireland down as a tax haven, creating a department for food, and nationalising our renewable energy assets. If you had to choose just one, which would it be and why? Tax, because I think it has the the largest repercussions around the world. Um, Like, nobody wins with tax avoidance. Even this idea that Ireland somehow wins... Um, we really don't. You know, we lose a load of tax revenue. Other countries lose a load of tax revenue. 
and you know we take a few crumbs as payment for that but in in reality um everybody loses so that's the one i'd pick Saoirse McHugh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, William. That's it for this season of Five Degrees of Change. Thanks so much for listening this season and we will be back again soon with another season and more great guests. If you have any suggestions about who we should interview on the podcast, please do contact me on dmurray at businesspost.ie and we'll see you all again here soon. Five Degrees of Change with Daniel Murray. The Business Post's Energy and Environment Podcast.